Hey everybody, how is it going? Bonjour, bonjour from Reunion Island where I am recording, looking out my hotel window up the flanks of this beautiful volcanic island, looking up towards the Cirque, several thousand feet above where I sit now, basically on the beach. If you don't know where Reunion Island is, I am currently in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Look it up on Google Earth. And then after you're done with that, look it up on Google Images. This place is absolutely insane. It is so freaking cool. And I feel like most of the people who listen to this show may have never heard about this island at all or know that one of the world's coolest and craziest 100 mile races takes place here every year, which is why I'm here, of course. It is currently Tuesday morning, so we are a little bit more than two days removed from the start of the grand raid of Reunion Island, aka the Diagonal des Fous, which in English, translated from French, means the crossing of the idiots the Diagonal of the Fools. And I will be one of those fools this Thursday night and I can't freaking wait. Uh, look up the Grand Raid of Reunion Island if you are unfamiliar with this race. It is one of the most notorious, uh, one of the most challenging, but also seemingly one of the coolest 100 milers in the world. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it here in a second, but welcome. Really happy you guys are here. I uh, just wanted to do a quick podcast episode where I talk a little bit about the race coming up, sort of how I'm feeling about it, the training leading into it, what my goals and expectations are for the race itself. And then I think I'll transition after that to sort of tick through some ask me anything questions. A couple of weeks ago on Instagram, I sent out the bat signal, received a bunch of great questions. So I just want to kind of tick through some of those after I talk a little bit more about the race here coming up. So that's kind of how this episode will be oriented. I hope you guys will enjoy it. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. So just to kind of give you all a background, I heard of this race, the Diagonal des Fous, I think it was back in 2012 when Joe Grant did the race. Of course, uh, Reunion Island is a French territory, even though it's a full 11 hour flight from Paris, very far away from France. Uh, it is a, a French territory. It was you know, part of their colonization efforts hundreds of years ago, uh, but it is an incredibly cool, multicultural, multi-ethnic, wild volcanic island, uh, but French speaking and, and with a lot of sort of French uh, cultural um, sort of characteristics to it. Uh, but it just a incredibly cool, amazing, beautiful place. And it was Joe Grant who sort of turned me on to, to this race back in the day. This race is huge for the French. Of course, Joe uh, grew up, I believe, in France as a French-speaking person and generally has his finger on the pulse of what's going on on the international trail and ultra running world. And very much uh, that was the case back in 2012 when he came over here. And I think he was sort of the first person to give this race exposure in the United States. He wrote a great 
race report from his experience here that was published on I Run Far. I'll actually probably put a link to that in the show notes if I can remember uh, so that you guys can read it because even though Joe was unable to finish the race that year, uh, he sort of put the bug in my ear. He put the idea in my brain and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I'm so excited to be here this year in 2021 for what is the 29th running of this race. So it's also one of the older 100 milers in the world in addition to being one of the most iconic and hardest, uh, though it seems that the race is not as well known in the United States or really in a lot of parts of the world as it is in Europe and specifically in France. Uh, this race is, I think, predominantly uh, sort of dominated by French participants, uh, a lot of local runners here uh, from Reunion Island, and then uh, you know at least uh, several hundred other runners from different nationalities, uh, but it is definitely dominated by uh, the French and the local runners. In fact, I think I might be the only American in the entire race. I'm probably wrong about that, and somebody will correct me. But if I am not the only American in the entire race, I think there's probably less than a handful of us in a field of nearly 3,000. So this is also the largest 100 mile race by participants. And one of the other things that makes the Grand Raid so special is the local involvement here. If you haven't, uh, go ahead and, and look up Grand Raid Reunion on YouTube and you can get an idea of just how important this race is to the local sporting culture, I think to the local tourist economy and just generally to the local, uh, yeah, just like event calendar. It's truly sort of a Super Bowl type event on Reunion Island. There are thousands of fans and spectators who travel into the heart of the island, places that are only accessible on foot or by helicopter. And they go by the hundreds, by the dozens by the thousands in some of these towns to cheer us on. So it has sort of the feeling of the Tour de France uh, while still being, you know, a trail ultra race, which is so freaking cool to me. And one of the reasons why I've wanted to come here for such a long time, of course, as I said, I learned about this race back in 2012. So that's a full nine years ago now. And the reason I am here now in 2021 is because uh, well, I guess it was back in 2019 that I wrote this race down as a goal in the same season as doing the Hard Rock 100. And the reason I did that was twofold. Number one, I felt that the two races complemented each other really well, just in terms of the training necessary to race successfully. Uh, so Hard Rock, of course, is a 100-mile race with roughly 33,000 feet of climbing. Diagonally Defu is effectively the exact same. While Hard Rock is very much sort of a high altitude mountain environment, this is mostly a low altitude volcanic island tropical environment, hot and humid. So while the sort of atmospheric environmental conditions are very different, the topographical, the course profile 
sort of similarities I felt made the two races advantageous to do in the same season because I could do a long, really hard buildup for the Hard Rock 100, which was back in July, then take a massive break and then bank on the fact that all the big mountain training, all the weeks and months of massive volume and vertical that I did to prepare for hard rock would still be fresh in my mind, fresh in my muscles and in my body so that with just a little bit of training after a big rest from hard rock, I could take what was, uh, you know, very hard and strategic training for big vert big mountain race at Hard Rock, and it would still translate to a race like Diagonal de Fou. The other reason why I felt it was intelligent was because of the separation between the two events themselves. So, of course, Hard Rock was back in mid-July, so it was just about exactly three months ago. I took basically six weeks off from training after Hard Rock, only started running in any real serious way, uh, sort of after UTMB, put in a very short block. Um, in fact, maybe too short. We'll get to that in a second. And uh, then flew over here to uh, La Reunion, arriving just about a week ago now and adjusting well to the time change and getting ready for an awesome race here in just a couple of days. So it was really the training that led into Hard Rock and that race itself, um, and then sort of the separation between the two events that made me feel like it was advantageous to do these two races in the same season. And I gotta say, I am coming in feeling pretty fresh physically, uh, though I have to say that it was a couple of weeks ago, right before I was due to depart on this insane trip, and we'll get to that in a second too. Just the effort that it takes to get to Reunion Island is quite significant. Uh, but yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, I was feeling very run down, pretty overwhelmed and stressed by everything that I had going on in my life at the time. Of course, those who listen to the podcast or follow me know that it's uh, very recently that I have left my day job, a career that uh, I had been in for the last eight or nine years in order to sort of pursue my my real passion, my mission in life, which is this great sport of trail and ultra running and everything that we're trying to do with pillars on the app side and on the media side, including with this podcast. So between buttoning up my final responsibilities at work and closing up some last minute pieces of business that I was personally responsible for, and then also trying to train at a high level to record podcasts and make content and work on our app and do all the things necessary for that side of my life. Um, I was feeling really stressed, really worn out, wasn't necessarily feeling great in my training. And so I contemplated bailing on this trip at the last minute before, you know, I used my better judgment, I hope, I think, and decided to come take advantage of this special life experience. This trip has always been intended to be my personal celebration of this life transformation that I've been experiencing. I really do feel that I've been 
in the middle of sort of a personal metamorphosis over the past 12 months or more, actually probably more like a year and a half. And it was always intended that after I finished my day job responsibilities on October 1st, that I would leave, travel to Reunion Island, and that this trip would be a celebration of this transition, this pivotal moment of my life. And now that I'm here, I'm feeling really good about it. I can't freaking wait. I kind of wish like I had done a little bit more training, that I was a little fitter than I feel right now. But, you know, I've got the enthusiasm, I've got the motivation. And for those who listen to the show, you know that that's something I always pound the table about is that more important than being fit is arriving at the start line, feeling excited for the challenge ahead. And that's definitely how I feel now. So hopefully that's a good indication. But of course, you never know until you you get to the start line and until you actually try. So we will find out soon enough. So just want to talk a little bit about my training leading into it. As I said, I took a big, huge six-week break after you, or I'm sorry, after Hard Rock only started running in any serious way after I got home from UTMB. I've been doing a bunch of traveling for, for work and for other sort of projects that I have going on. And so the training was not really coming easy. I still was able to put in maybe four solid weeks, including uh, a, a couple of weeks of higher volume for me, over 100 miles. I did get a couple sort of critical long runs in, including a 40 miler around Mount Hood on the Timberline Trail. Uh, That was about eight hours. And then I had another sort of seven, seven and a half hour run with my good buddy Yassine Daboon in Leavenworth, Washington. We sort of made a little video about that you can see on YouTube. I will try and make a note to put that in the show notes too here in my brain. Um, So I did get a couple of sort of critical long runs in, but definitely feel like I would have, I could have used two or three weeks at least more training. Uh, But again, this is not my first rodeo. I have a lot of experience and I do have uh, seemingly a lot of energy. I am feeling really fresh at least mentally right now, uh, having not done crazy amount of training and having looked forward to stepping to this start line in particular and trying my hand here at the Grand Raid for almost a decade now. So that's how I'm feeling. That's sort of how my my training went. You can always look at my Strava if you want to see the specifics, um, you know, the the exact volumes and things like that that I was doing. I can't say off the top of my head, but I do record everything there if you want to check out my preparation for the Grand Raid. Um, So yeah, I think generally just coming in, feeling fresh, though not crazy fit, is, um, you know, sort of how I'm feeling. And actually, I went for a run the other day with a local runner and a teammate of mine from Compressed Sport, a gentleman by the name of David House, who's a professional trail runner, also a former professional triathlete. In fact, he finished fourth place at the London Olympics in the triathlon, just one spot away from a bronze medal there. But David House grew up here on Reunion Island. And one of the things he said to me that really stuck with me and made me feel better about my preparation is that you don't necessarily need to be fit at the Grand Raid. You need to be tough and you need to be fresh. 
uh, because it is a hard, long 100 miler, what he meant is that you're always moving rather slowly, so you don't necessarily need to be crazy fit. You just have to be ready for a long slog. And uh, so that definitely made me feel better. And I am feeling up for a long slog right now. So I'm taking that as a positive indication. One of the other things that I was really worried about with this race is the travel. It's a huge, huge, huge trip. And there haven't been a ton of Americans that have come over here to do the race period. And the, those who have come over have had somewhat, I would say, rough experiences or certainly haven't raced to their potential with the exception of Sabrina Stanley, who won the race in 2019. The last time they ran the event, uh, Sabrina Stanley, of course, two-time hard rock champ among many things was able to win here the first and only American to do so. And then on the men's side, uh, there haven't been a lot of men that have come over off the top of my head. Joe Grant came over in 2012. He did not finish. Jason Schlarb came over in 2014 and he finished 10th place, which is our best showing, I believe, for the Americans at this point, um, but certainly well off his potential on the course. And then also... My good friend Seth Swanson came over, I think it was in 2016 or 2017, and ran you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 27 hours, and certainly well off his potential on the island as well. And, and my thinking was that a lot of the reason why the Americans have struggled here is because the travel is insane. So to sort of give you an idea of what I had to do coming from Portland, basically I had to get myself to Paris, France, which is a big trip in itself. And then from Paris, you fly 11 hours south to this island. And so the way that I thought about it uh, was that I really wanted to arrive here not feeling completely smashed. I wanted to do whatever, it was, whatever was necessary, excuse me, to do in order to arrive on Reunion Island feeling as fresh as is possible when you're doing an 11 hour time change and traveling, whatever it is, 10,000 miles <laughs> to the other side of the world. And the way that I set this up, and this I th think now in hindsight was a brilliant move on my part. I'm patting myself on the back for it was effectively staying in Paris for a day and a half. So the, the reason that was great was because it just broke up the trip. So arrived in Paris, in fact, met Ryan, Ryan Thrower, our trusty podcast producer, partner on Pillars is here with me. We're making lots of content. We'll get to that in a sec. Met Ryan in Paris, and then the two of us just hung out for 36 hours before then getting on an overnight flight from Paris down to Reunion Island just about a week ago. And that breakup of the trip was so clutch. We had the night that we were there, Ryan and I slept for 13 freaking hours, maybe the best night's sleep of my entire life. Woke up feeling like an absolute champion, walked around the city a little bit, went for a short run, and, uh, and then, you know, took a, took a long, long flight and got here to the island feeling a little bit less haggard than we would have 
had we flown direct from the Pacific Northwest. Ryan lives in Seattle. I live in Portland all the way down here. So for those Americans who are listening who want to do this race, I would highly recommend using this strategy. Stay in Paris for a couple of days. Uh, get out of the plane, hydrate, stretch, go for a short run, and then make the second huge trip. Um, I really do feel like that has been clutch because I've been feeling great since I've been here. Definitely still battling the jet lag a little bit, but overall feeling much better than I would have um, had I had I flown straight here to the island. So. We've been here now for about a week, gone for some cool runs out on the course, but generally just trying to rest. One of my key learnings from Hard Rock, for those who listen to the post-Hard Rock podcast, was that it's just so, so important to line up feeling very fresh at these really long, difficult 100-mile races. So I'm putting a lot more emphasis in trying to, feeling, uh, trying to feel very rested and fresh. Uh, so I haven't been doing a ton of adventurous stuff here on the island by design. I figure I'll cram all my adventurous uh, exploration in a hopefully 22 to 25 hour race here in just a couple of days. Been resting. Um, I have, you know, gotten some advice from some locals uh, as to how to approach the race, what the critical moments are in the race, and uh, feel like I'm well prepared, um, you know, to sort of have at least some beta about the course and a lot of local knowledge in my brain. I've done what I always do, which is read a bunch of race reports from past finishers, watch YouTube videos, watch I run far interviews, things like that, just to do my homework. So even though I haven't seen hardly any of the course, uh, I have seen the last half marathon of the course. And I have seen, I guess, what is the most technical descent on the course that comes at about uh, 55K. So, you know, a little less than 40 miles into the race. So I have seen a few critical pieces, but for the most part, it is gonna be totally new to me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess my, my strategy and expectations for the race are to go out easy, as easier said than done as usual, but I kind of want to race it just like I did at Hard Rock, you know, stay engaged the whole time, keep my brain in it, stay excited about the challenge, keep reminding myself that this is a celebration of my life metamorphosis, that this is a celebration of the sport, that this is a race that I've wanted to do for a decade and try and keep that good attitude throughout. Um, can't say that I feel as fit as I did before Hard Rock, but I guess we'll see. I really don't know how fit I am, to be quite honest, but what I lack in fitness, I hopefully will make up for with freshness and motivation, like I said earlier. But yeah, just try and stay engaged the entire 100 miles and run the downhills easy, take what the course gives me, try not to force anything because from what I've heard, it is relentless. So sort of just try and be at peace with the island, try and be one with the island and uh, enjoy my time moving moving with it in, in the synchronized rhythm rather than trying to fight it. So 
Check out our YouTube video if you guys haven't yet. We've been putting out some content since we got here. We have a couple more videos coming before the race, and then we are going to be making a video about the race. This is with the generous support of Compressed Sport, one of my longtime partners, a great uh, sort of compression sock slash apparel, performance apparel company um, in, in Europe. Uh, they have been so supportive of me throughout my career over the past seven or eight years I've worked with them and they wanted to help us out to make some great content. So big shout out to Compress Sport and also to Gnarly Nutrition, a new, new friend and partner of mine and of ours here. And uh, so big thank you to them. So we're going to be making a, a cool race video in collaboration with Compressed Sport and Gnarly Nutrition. So keep your eye out for that on our YouTube channel. Anyway, that's how I'm feeling about the Grand Raid. Again, we start Thursday night at 9 p.m., which I think is 11 a.m. Pacific time. I'll see if I can find any resources as to how you can follow it if you want to. And then after the race, maybe we'll do a recap podcast if it feels appropriate and relevant. And like I said, keep your eye out for some other video content. Okay, let's transition to some of these AMA questions now. The first one comes from Tina Morelli on Instagram. And she asks, how do you balance a full-time job, family, and ultra training? <laughs> and I sort of talked about this earlier. I have been probably not the right person to answer this question. I have been extremely out of balance basically this entire year. Um, I have been working quite a lot in addition to trying to be a pro athlete. I have basically been working seven days a week the entire year, both on my day job, which of course I have just left, and also on Pillars, the app and the podcast and the content and everything that we are trying to build with our business. And yeah, I, I can't lie. I have been very imbalanced. But I guess what I would say as it relates to this question is that my imbalance has been manageable or sustainable, at least to some degree, because I've been so freaking excited about the things that I've been working on. So even though I have definitely been sacrificing things like sleep and recovery and a social life and things like that, because of the fact that I feel this sense of purpose, this sense of mission with what we're doing with Pillars, and because I'm so excited about the future of the sport and this opportunity to really devote myself to it 100%, it's really made this imbalance a lot less, I guess, uh, overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's truly, I've just been consumed with this passion and a, I have to say, a deep confidence about the trajectory of our sport and, you know, our place in it. I feel like we have something to contribute to trail and ultra running. And um, I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to, to really to focus on it. And so I guess the, the answer to the question of how, how do you balance all this stuff is that sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes you do have to make sacrifices. And for me, it definitely did become clear that I was going to have to make a sacrifice. My intention has been to leave my job for a long time, but until a few months ago, my, I guess, 
plan was to wait until it was clear that Pillars was going to be a sustainable and profitable enterprise prior to leaving the comfort and security of my day job. And it quickly became clear that Pillars was never going to achieve escape velocity. We were never going to be able to um, sort of get to a point where I wanted it to be as a business and that being sustainable and something that employs people and that does good for the community, but that also pays my bills unless I sacrifice something. And the truth is that the only thing I was willing to sacrifice was my day job. And so it was not a hard decision for me to make. I am just overjoyed with this transition, this transformation uh, of my life and of my career. And I'm fully aware that, you know, there's a good chance that we fail in this effort, but I'm still just so excited to try. So I think to sort of answer the question quickly is that sometimes balance is not something to strive for. Sometimes it's not achievable, but if you're working on things that you care about, being out of balance is, I think, I don't know. It's more sustainable. It's something that is not quite as overwhelming, not as daunting and not as it doesn't have the same sort of, I think, physical and mental consequences when it's actually stuff that you can't take your mind off anyway. I mean, I've been absolutely fucking possessed for 18 months about everything that I'm working on. And so it's made my 18 months of imbalance actually feel fun and easy at times, even though I've been crazy busy. Next question. This comes from TJ Chartier, also on Instagram. And he asks, how's your stress levels now that you've left your job? Has it affected your running positively or negatively? TJ, thank you for the question. To be honest, it's too early to tell. As I said, my last day at work was October 1st. I have had a couple of little things come up that I've had to take care of after the fact, but at least that was the symbolic psychological end date of my uh, sort of day job. Um, and so we're only 19 days removed from that departure. Now I left on this trip, I think it was October 11th. So about eight days ago. Um, so yeah, it's too early to tell about how leaving my job is going to impact my stress levels. But the reason I did it is because I was pretty certain that it was going to significantly reduce my, my overall workload and stress levels. But at the same time, you know, the reason I left my job also was that so that I could devote the time that I was spending on a full-time career and, and sort of spend that time on, on pillars, you know? So I don't anticipate that my workload will decrease. It'll just change and it'll uh, sort of become, yeah, much more oriented to this passion and this personal mission rather than sort of, uh, yeah, doing, doing the same thing I have been doing for, for nine years. Um, but I would hope that it, it'll help. It, uh, it'll, I hope that it'll really help my overall stress levels because like I said in my last answer to Tina's question, I am just consumed with a feeling of purpose with pillars right now. And uh, 
I feel like we're on to something and I just want to keep chasing it and keep moving the ball forward and keep taking swings. That's one of the things that I also want to do is just keep trying stuff, keep trying stuff. And if it doesn't work, iterate, pivot, try something new, but generally just try and innovate, try and push things forward. I have a lot of interesting ideas that I want to pursue. And uh, now that I have left my job, I have a lot more time to devote towards those interesting ideas. Um, and we'll see, see what pans out. But um, thank you for the question. Definitely have been crazy stressed in the last couple months. Um, but it's been a good stress. It's been a feeling of, yeah, you know, being on a mission rather than being, um, I don't know, sort of getting beat over the head with nonstop obligation. Yeah, I guess that's a better way to put it. It's, it's, it feels fun. It doesn't feel like an obligation. So that is fun. Okay, moving on. Next question. This comes from Dan Alcott. Dan asks, how do you approach your race calendar? How do you decide which races to run and how much to rest in between? Dan, this is a great question, something I always put a lot of thought into as I'm constructing race calendars. And the process of constructing race calendars is always one of my favorite things to do every year. It's usually sort of no November, December that I start formulating ideas about what I want to do in the following season. And one of the downsides of COVID is that we haven't really been able to plan, but my hope is that coming up here in the next couple months, we'll, we'll really be able to sort of plan our adventures for next year and yeah, really start uh, putting pen to paper on what I want my sort of training and racing schedule to be. But to answer your question, I think more specifically, I think using this year as an example is a good sort of visual into how I think about this stuff. And of course I should also emphasize a caveat on the front end that everybody's different. Some people can race a lot more than others. I kind of find myself to be somebody who races and trains less than I would say the average professional on the international circuit. I typically do three, four, maybe five events a year. Um, and some athletes will do double that. So I would say that, you know, just keep that in mind that uh, I'm definitely different than a lot of athletes and I'm speaking just for myself here, but this year I think is a good encapsulation of how kind of a perfectly planned out year looks for me. And just to kind of run through things chronologically, early in the year, I was just getting pillars off the ground. I was working crazy hours on everything and generally didn't have a ton of time to train. This was also the winter months. So uh, sort of a time of the year when you don't necessarily want to be training that much anyway, especially when you live in the Pacific Northwest. It's very dark and cold and rainy for that part of the year. So what I did in the early months of 2021 was just focus on shorter runs, much lower volume, but with lots of high intensity running. So I was doing lots of sort of the Jason Coop patented six by three minute uphill full gas VO2 max interval repeats. 
I was doing sort of a lot of tempo uphill repeats, but most of my runs were between an hour and an hour and a half for the first couple months of the year. And what that did was, you know, it kept my overall training volume low. It kept my, the overall sort of physical stress of training rather low, but it kept the quality really high. So I ended up getting pretty darn fit in those early months. And then of course in the spring, I guess it was in, I can't remember if it was February or March. I think it was in March when I went and did the Joshua Tree Traverse FKT which again, we made a video about, which you can find on the Pillars YouTube channel. That was roughly 37 miles. If my memory serves correctly, I think it was four hours and 15 minutes. So roughly a 50K type race effort. Of course, this was still when COVID was really impacting racing opportunities. So this sort of was my, my first kind of knock the rust off test piece. Um, early in the season, sort of like how a lot of people will do kind of an early season 50K race. This was effectively the equivalent for me, even though it was an FKT rather than a race that went really well, validated my training strategy uh, in the early part of the year where I had definitely felt fit, but uh, was doing it on sort of lower volume training. And then after the Joshua Tree Traverse, I did the Backbone Trail FKT in May. So the Joshua Tree Traverse got me uh, a great sort of fitness bump. And then once I recovered from it briefly and put in, you know, a few more weeks of really solid training, transitioning more to sort of longer tempo slash steady state type uh, interval sessions rather than sort of the shorter VO2 max type sessions, I then went and did the backbone FKT. And the whole goal of the backbone FKT was to help get me prepared for hard rock. So it was a long sort of 10 hour high intensity training effort for me. Um, though, you know, I gave it everything that I had that day, was able to break the FKT by I think 20 or 25 minutes really the whole goal was to put in a 10 hour training day. It was 67 miles to get me fit and strong for hard rock. So again, to recap, we started the year with uh, high intensity, but low volume. Then did the Joshua tree traverse effectively like a 50 K then did the backbone FKT effectively like a hundred K and all, but all those things then led me up to what was my most important A goal of the season, and that was Hard Rock. So after Backbone, of course, we went to Mammoth, my wife and I, for a six-week training camp, uh, and that was specifically to train for the environment that I would encounter at Hard Rock. And this is something that I also pound the table about all the time, the importance of specificity in your training, do whatever you can to mimic not only the terrain, but the environmental factors of the race that you're training for. For Hard Rock, of course, it's a high altitude mountainous environment. And I figured that I would be able to simulate it fairly well for Mammoth Lakes, California. So did a really great high volume six-week training camp in Mammoth Lakes, California before going to Hard Rock and having what is definitely one of the best races of my career and certainly a, a peak, peak life experience for me uh, at the Hard Rock 100 in July where I finished second place. 
And then after hard rock, this is critical. I took a massive break, massive break after hard rock, probably six weeks of doing very low volume, no massive long runs, nothing that would be a physical stress on my system and just generally try and absorb that massive effort of hard rock itself, but also the training leading up to it starting, you know, at the beginning of the year, really. And then after that massive break, it was basically when I got home from doing the live commentary at UTMB, feeling very inspired by watching all the athletes there that week that I got back to Portland and put in what I feel like was probably a little bit too short of a training block. It was probably only like four or five weeks. Uh, I wish I would have had two, three, maybe four extra weeks to train. But anyway, I got four or five good weeks of training in before Diagonal Defu, which is in two days. So that's generally how I would set up my racing season in an ideal world is have sort of an A goal in the middle of the year, so in this case, hard rock, excuse me. And then leading into hard rock, having two sort of B tier goals that you use as stepping stones to that A goal. In my case, the Joshua Tree Traverse and the Backbone Trail. So both of those were, were goals. I wanted to run as hard and as well as I could at those, but I did them when I did them and I chose those specific trails because I felt like they would set me up well for hard rock. So they were very much stepping stones to hard rock. And then after hard rock, after your A goal, I think it's so important to just take a huge break, whether it goes well or it goes poorly, just unplug, relax, allow your, your body, but maybe more importantly, your brain, your emotional system to just forget about running for a little while. This is so important for me to do. Something I've really learned about myself is that I really need those periods of massive reset in order to feel excited and motivated um, and energized in my training. So um, took that massive break after Hard Rock. And now, even though I might not be crazy fit going into the Grand Raid this week, I'm definitely feeling fresh and, and ready for a long slog across a volcanic island. So that's my, I guess, um, sort of recommendation for how to approach structuring a race calendar. I think another anecdote here that's important to mention is Francois Dane. I just admire this guy so much. And I think there's so much to learn from just observing his career and how he's approached it for the last decade, really. But this year in particular too, one of the things he said in a lot of interviews about his hard rock and UTMB double was that he knew that the six weeks in between, it was going to be really difficult for him to recover adequately to then have his perfect performance at UTMB. So the way that he approached, no, uh, approached the double, understanding that fact, I felt that his strategy was just absolutely brilliant. And that was to get to hard rock feeling as fresh as he possibly could. So if you look at Francois Strava, and I think he posts everything there too, you see that he did very little running in like the first six months of 2021. He was doing a lot of ski touring. He was doing a lot of, a lot of cycling, but not a lot of running. And, you know, I think the, the, the thinking behind that was that 
once he got to Silverton, you know, he arrived, I think, three weeks before the race and put in just a bunch of massive runs at altitude on the hard rock course that because he's been in the sport for a long time, because he was coming in with, with fitness, though fitness specific to ski mountaineering and cycling, that with a very short running block of just several massive, or a few weeks of massive volume on the hard rock course at altitude, that he would be able to transition his cycling and skiing fitness into running fitness, but still critically come in feeling very rested. And because he came in feeling very rested, but still fit, Francois, of course, absolutely smashed the course record at Hard Rock, ran a time that, you know, 10 years ago, nobody thought was even remotely possible on the Hard Rock course. Francois coming in and running under 22 hours, I think is it, the, the reason for that is that it's the direct consequence. It's the direct result of him approaching his season, how he did. So to your question of how to structure a season, think about how Francois would do it. He's absolutely brilliant. And then of course, he's able to recover well enough because he went into hard rock fresh to then win UTMB. One of the most insane accomplishments, I think, in ultra history is Francois being able to win both those races this year in spectacular fashion. So put a lot of thought into structuring your race calendar. I know it's hard with lotteries and stuff now, but it deserves a ton of thought. It deserves real intentional consideration. And that's something that I try and do in my career as well. Okay, long answer there. Next question here. What's the nutrition strategy that you currently use? How many gels until you start to feel like death? This comes from Matt B underscore 88 on Instagram. 88 is my lucky number, Matt B. So uh, thanks for writing in. Thanks for your question. Um, of course, you know, this is another one of those things where huge caveat, what I do for me, it, you know, it's always changing. It's always a moving target um, and might not work for you. But, you know, one of the things that I have found works best for me is to do mostly liquid calories um, for races of basically all distances. I like to drink my calories. I just find it easier when I'm getting my calories and my fluids and hydration from the same place. It eliminates a step. It it simplifies things in my brain and generally it makes me feel a little bit more energized. It makes me feel like I'm getting a constant drip of calories rather than dumping in a hundred, couple hundred calories every 20 or 30 minutes. If you're eating gels or shot blocks or whatever, instead sort of using drink mix and drinking nearly all of my calories. I'm now using a product from Gnarly Nutrition. Shout out to Gnarly Nutrition. It's called Fuel 2.0. This stuff is freaking awesome. Check it out if you haven't yet. It's sort of a high calorie drink mix. Uh, the packets are amazing. So <laughs> the, the product is great, but also the packaging is great because they're about the size of a gel and they're easy to open. I'm sure some of you guys have used drink mixes where it's like, what the hell? Why is this so freaking hard? to open and pour into my bottles. And especially in racing, it's so frustrating when you can't open the damn drink mix packets. This uh, 
gnarly nutrition fuel to O product is easy to open. It's easy to fill your bottles with, and it's also a great product. It's like 200 calories per packet. So I'll either use one, like half a packet per bottle or use a full packet per bottle, just depending on how I'm feeling, how much energy I feel like I need and uh, like how hot it is, how much I'm sweating, things like that. So Gnarly Nutrition Fuel 2.0 is the product that I'm using right now. One of the other things, I mean, you specifically ask how many gels until you start feeling like death. One of the things from Hard Rock that I think was fascinating, for, certainly first time in my career that I had gone an entire race without eating a single gel. That's right, 20, nearly 23 hours at Hard Rock, I didn't eat a single gel. Um, so I got basically all my calories from this drink mix. And then also critically at the end of the race, I ate some fruit. That's another thing that I'm planning to do a lot earlier here this week at the Grand Raid is to eat fruit at the aid stations. I'll drink Fuel 2.0. And then I, I like to eat Bobo's Oat Bars. Um, they're sort of dense. Uh, they're, you know, high carbohydrate. They've got plenty of calories and I, they, I can generally just kind of choke them down no matter how I'm feeling. Um, and because they're so dense and high calorie, I feel like they, they fill me up and they, they fuel me really well. It's something I use a lot in sort of my long mountain days training in mammoth and another company I don't have a relationship with, but, uh, uh, a brand that I like, a, a product that I like, Bobo's Oat Bars. So check them out. So that's my nutrition strategy right now. Um, I think, yeah, the older I get, the less I can do gels anymore. So I try and stay away from them. But check out Gnarly Nutrition. They're freaking awesome, man. And they're beyond the, this drink mix. They have great sort of protein powder for uh, post-race recovery. They've got uh, some amino acid supplements that I really like. They've got a pre-run uh, supplement that I really like. Also a drink mix. They've got sort of a performance greens product that's great. So big shout out to them. We'll have sort of some cool announcements of how we're going to be collaborating with them here in the near future. Thank you for your question, Matt. Moving on. Next question. <clears throat> Excuse me. What are your non-running routines? <clears throat> Strength, stretching, etc. This comes from Andy Zelinsky, thank you, Andy, for your question. A few things to touch on here. Non-running routines. One of the things I've talked about on the podcast many times is the importance of strength training, especially as we get older as athletes. It's just so, so important that we continue to emphasize strengthening our bodies, even though we're runners, even though you don't necessarily think about running as a strength, uh, sort of, yeah, sort of a strength oriented sport. It's so freaking important to keep your strength up, especially as we age as athletes. And one of the things that I would say on this front is to do it in a group environment. If you can, everybody knows the benefits of training in a group environment of going on long runs with your friends or doing workouts with your friends similar with, with strength training. So in Portland right now, I've mentioned this on the podcast, I think a couple of times, we've got a great group of people. We meet on Thursday nights with the great Matt Walsh, uh, sort of a PT slash strength coach. 
a brilliant guy in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's an Australian, so we call ourselves the Walsh Wallabies. We get together on Thursday nights and we throw the iron around. We clang and bang. And uh, yeah, great group of, of trail runners in Portland. And it's so fun to do it in a group environment too. And it, I think, makes us all feel a little bit more accountable when we do it with each other, just like it does when you go out and do you know, workouts together. Same goes with uh, strengthening. So make sure you're getting in the gym and try and do it with other people if you can. Another thing that I'm huge about that some people I think aren't as into is stretching. Oh my God. When I hear people say that stretching is useless or like counterproductive, I don't feel like they have ever stretched in their lives because for those who do, after you've stretched, God, I feel like a new person. So, you know, try it. If you're not doing it, stretching, foam rolling, obviously people know the benefits of foam rolling. That also feels amazing. And I don't know, I think one of the things that I've always been inspired about, you know, is, is Tom Brady and his longevity, his ability to stay healthy for such a long time now in his mid 40s, still competing at a world class level in the NFL. It's amazing. And I think the reason he is able to do that is because he takes such good care of his body. He does a lot of what they call pliability, which is effectively just stretching and massaging, I think. Uh, just a fancy way of, of saying that, mobilizing tissue of just making sure you're soft and pliable and, and uh, yeah, that, yeah, you, you, you have some flexibility to your body as well. I think it combats injury. You know, he also notoriously has a very clean diet, avoids, you know, alcohol and things like that. I'm certainly not as disciplined as Tom Brady is on that front, but I really am, especially in my mid thirties now. I do everything that I can to keep my body healthy. So oftentimes, honestly, you'll find me like on the floor for like an hour, some nights, just listening to podcasts, stretching, rolling, you know, doing mobilization exercises. And I think this is just so freaking important for longevity, health, durability. And also I spare no expense, man. I spend money on this stuff. I get massages often, shout out to my guy, Mitch Hovecki in Portland, Oregon, freaking awesome massage therapist, man. I mean, this stuff is important. And even though it costs money, I mean, it's worth its weight in gold, um, just to sort of have a professional beat you up every once in a while to break some of the tightness up in your body. Uh, I think, yeah, for me, it's just a, a, a big investment. It's an investment I feel like in my health and my career. Also in terms of routines, you know, on sort of the mental spiritual side of things, I can't speak highly enough about the benefits of meditation in my life. It's one of those things, you know, that we all hear about ad nauseum now to the point where it's almost annoying, but I mean, truthfully, like it has made a big difference in my life and just my general peace of mind, my ability to deal with the last 18 months of wild stress and, you know, some days of, you know, quote, crazy, overwhelming sort of, this is never going to work type anxiety, things like that. Meditate, man. I swear it's, it's also sort of a, 
it's similar to training where you notice the benefits once you're consistent with it over time. And so if you do it every day, you just carve out 10 minutes a day for two weeks. And I promise by the end of those two weeks, you're going to feel like a different person. And it, it becomes a lot easier to then justify the 10 minutes going forward. And, you know, sometimes it, it becomes a lot easier to set your alarm earlier so that you get a longer one in. Another thing that I've been really into recently is breath work too. Um, we've got some great stuff in the Pillars app um, led by my good buddy, Myel Backhausen. We've got like 10, 15 minute and 25 minute breath work sessions in there. And I do try and do one of those every single day. Also, also just a phenomenal way to sort of recenter yourself, to reset and to just kind of like find a space of peace real quick um, in your daily life. I try and do that, you know, at some point during the day, but usually do sort of like a evening meditation followed by breath work with Harmo while we sit on the couch with our dogs. It's pretty freaking great way to end a day. Let's maybe do one more here. I got to get going to a little press conference here. Let's see. How about this one? How have you had longevity in the sports tips relating to injury and durability? So this is sort of, I think, similar to or so, yeah, I guess a, a good extension from the last question and answer. I think when it comes to longevity in sport and sort of avoiding injury, you know, for me, I've had two injuries in my career and it's been on my right ankle and my left ankle. Both of those have been very acute. I've never had an overuse thing or a stress fracture or anything that was just came from overdoing it. And I think this is a good glimpse into just my personality um, is that I've never been prone to overdoing it in training or in racing. I've been very consistent and I'm very cognizant of when I don't want to run. And at those times of the year, I just don't run. I run very little. I don't care about doing workouts. I don't care about what my weekly mileage is. And I think this is a gift of mine that probably comes from the fact that I didn't grow up a runner is that I just don't care about the stats. I don't, I don't care about like the miles I put in or the hours I put in. I care about how I feel in my training. And so when I'm feeling like I don't want to train, I just don't train. Or when I finish a race, I very much look forward to the times that I can just take my watch off and completely forget that I'm a runner, drink a bunch of beer, you know, and totally kind of forget about sort of the disciplined life of a professional athlete. And then when it's time to buckle down again, I feel motivated, I feel fresh, and I feel ready to do it again. And without these moments of reset, and rest and without sort of listening to that internal rhythm and intuition that you have about your body and about, you know, what you're capable of achieving and training and in racing, you're bound to burn out at some point. And I think one of the other interesting things that I noticed only, I guess it was two years ago now that I noticed it, but I've been on Strava now since I think 2014. So I'm coming close to the end of the seventh year I've been on Strava. And it's crazy if you look at my numbers over the course of the seven years, how consistent it is. Like basically between 34 and 3,500 miles every single year 
with the exception of 2019 when I broke my ankle. And I think I'm pretty much on pace for the same number again this year. You know, there's some athletes who are doing over 5,000. I know Taggart Van Etten did 8,000. So think about that. I did 3,400, 3,500 a year for the last like seven, eight years. And that's just since I've been on Strava. My guess is this predates my Strava years when I wasn't really tracking my training. I think I just sort of have an internal governor that's like, okay, yeah, we run 34, 3,500 miles a year. And that's just where my body feels good. And that's just sort of like the rhythm that I've been in for a decade now. And I think it's helped me to stay consistent. So maybe go back and look at your training volume year over year and see how close they are to each other. Because to me, it was unbelievable when I realized it because it was, I was going back and just like looking at my training over, I think it was a five year period at that point. And I, I hadn't known it until I had gone back and looked at all my training. I hadn't realized that I had done nearly the exact amount of training every year for those five years. And then I hurt myself in 2019, was basically back into the same volume last year. I think it was about 3,400 miles last year, probably on pace for it this year. And that's what my body can handle. And uh, hopefully it'll keep me around the sport for a long time. So just try not to overdo it in training, but also in racing too. I think that's something we've learned in the recent history of the sport is that these race, the, the race efforts take a toll, man. Like putting yourself through a hundred miler, especially when you're going just as hard as you can for that long, it's freaking hard on your body and on your internal, you know, hormonal systems and on your psychological state, on your motivation levels. And so you just can't overdo that stuff. And you really have to take the time to recover afterwards. And if you do that, you know, then you can string together years and years of consistent high performance. And even though I'm not, you know, Jim Walmsley and I've never sort of like won Western States or UTMB, man, give me 15 year solid career any day over consistent injury or, um, you know, shorter career, obviously, I'm not, not singling out Jim. He's actually had a really solid longer career. And I think he'll continue to be dominant for at least another handful of years. Um, but yeah, just sort of, you know, using his, him and as, a, as an example of somebody who, who trains with much higher volume than I do. Um, and I think he's sort of learned to race at, uh, you know, a more sustainable level, you know, in terms of number of events he targets per season. Um, but listen to your body, man. And I think he's been able to do that in his career so far. And, uh, and I've done it in over the course of a decade in my career. And I think it's what's contributed to me still loving the sport and feeling good about the sport and feeling good about my body and my ability to compete here in my mid thirties after more than a decade of doing it at a high level. Okay, we've gone over an hour now. I've got a bunch of other questions here, so I might do another AMA here, maybe after the race, tick through a few more of these questions because I think there's some other good ones. But appreciate everybody who wrote in. I appreciate you guys all for listening. Um, yeah, I'll let you know if there's any way to follow the race this weekend. And uh, yeah, maybe after the fact, we'll record a little recap podcast and sort of tell the story of how it all went down. But feeling excited, feeling ready for it. And uh, 
yeah, generally just viewing it as a, a celebration of my personal metamorphosis in this new chapter of my life. And I'm so happy to have you guys along for the ride. I'm so appreciative of you tuning in and listening to me just freaking pontificate and talk into a microphone for hours and hours on end. My voice hurts. We'll sign off now. Love you guys so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.